0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, and today's episode will be about God's use of the nations throughout the Old Testament especially. I can start off by apologizing. I have been gone for the holiday season pretty much. Uh, Our family got the flu and I couldn't really talk, and then I had an issue where I was basically having coughing fit if I tried to talk for long periods of time, and that wouldn't work out very well for a podcast. And then we got sick again, and then we had the holidays and all that kind of stuff. So, I took basically the month of December off, and we are back at it. So, this will be the final episode of, I guess, the first half of this season. The idea is that this first half has been all about looking at the Old Testament for examples and more elaboration on uh, the relationship between God and governments, between the Christian and the state, these types of things. And so we've looked at all of these various examples of individuals involved in governments, uh, like Daniel and Joseph that we looked at. We have looked at just the overall idea, like looking at uh, Daniel's prophecy in the previous episode, where there was this... um, this, uh, I guess, differentiation that was explained between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God and more elaboration on that. And that gets into the end times as well and looked at all kinds of other things, Uh, the monarchy being established by Israel, all kinds of things like that, even Adam and Eve at the beginning. So the idea is we've kind of gone through all of these, at least highlight points, throughout the Old Testament. There is plenty more, but if we're trying to build out a really good understanding of this theology of obedience, we are to submit to the ruling authorities over us, and that is the kingdom of man, that is governments on earth. At the same time, we are supposed to submit to God in all things, and that would be above the ruling authorities on earth. You have the doctrine of lesser magistrates, if you want to get a little more into that, which is not 100% the same thing, but it has a lot of similarities. And so we have this, what seems like, this contradiction in especially today's world, but it turns out it plays out throughout all of history, that the kingdom of man and the governments that are ruling over us are largely corrupt and immoral and anti-biblical, however we're supposed to submit to them. And how do you submit to that? And how how are you involved with that? How do you participate in that without contradicting the more important aspect of your obedience to God. And uh, that's what we're really trying to get after. And I I think what has really come out over this first half of the season, and looking at all these examples, is that, that we have to separate the difference between submission and support, between obedience and participation. We need those to be two different things. Because it is a contradiction uh, to some extent, and people can argue as to what extent that is, that there is a contradiction between being involved with, being a part of, participating in and supporting the kingdom of man, uh, the governments, the earthly governments, and being obedient fully to God, and being a member of his kingdom, and being fully uh, participatory in his kingdom the, because they're two different things. They're two different kingdoms, and you you can't be in both. That's kind of just the way it is. I, and I guess I should clarify that a little bit more. That's probably not. Might not be accurate to say that you can't be in both, but uh, theologically and philosophically, you should not be in both. And that is what has been clear after going through all of these Old Testament examples is that you, the kingdom of man is ruled by the adversary. And in the end, it will be destroyed by God and it is labeled as an enemy of God. And you judge a tree by its fruit and you look at the fruit of governments. That uh, And it's it's bad. It's bad fruit. It's a bad tree. Should you be a part of that? Should you yoke yourself together with a corrupt system, with um, uh, an unbeliever's system, so to say, a secular system? Um, it, it doesn't mean that you don't, uh, I guess, uh, doesn't mean that you shouldn't be around it at all, because you have the idea of Jesus dining with sinners and being around them, that we are salt and light to be in this world. But we're not to be of this world. And so we have to find out, how do we parse that out? And that's kind of the goal of this season as a whole. So we've gotten to this point and I think I have hit the majority of all the questions that would come up or the objections to this of, oh, well, what about Joseph? He was in the government. Or, oh, what about this, that, or the other? Uh, what about Israel had kings and God told them to have kings and told them how to run it and all this kind of stuff? Oh, we've gone over all of that. So the final thing that we have not gone over would be um, basically God's use of nations, that God does use nations, that uh, he places uh authorities and powers in place, and they rule uh, because he allows it and he sets it up. This is usually something that is referenced through Romans 13, and we will get to Romans 13 one day, one year, who knows. But right now, again, we're in the Old Testament, and that's where it all really starts. And so, uh, I guess it might be useful to think Romans 13, while we go through this aspect of uh, God's use of nations. And it might be helpful if I start off by reading Romans 13, and that way we can kind of have that um, in the back of our minds as we go through this, because this is really what a lot of people go to. It says that, uh, this is just the beginning of Romans 13, Everyone is to obey the governing authorities, for there is no authority that is not from God, and the existing authorities have been placed where they are by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities is resisting what God has instituted, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are no terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you like to be unafraid of the person in authority? Then simply do what is good, and you will win his approval, for he is God's servant there for your benefit. But if you do what is wrong, be afraid, because it is not for nothing that he holds the power of the sword, for he is God's servant there as an avenger to punish wrongdoers." So again, Romans 13 is not the focus of this episode, and I probably won't get back to it at all. And there is a lot to get to in that, even in just those first few verses of the chapter. There, uh, yeah, there's a lot to do. And we will do a whole episode or more just on Romans 13, probably do Romans 12 and maybe even get into 14. But we will get to that at some point, hopefully. That is nowhere in the near future. So... In the meantime, we will stick with the Old Testament. But again, to uh, basically give an idea of where these objections come from, people say, oh, well, God set up these governments. God puts these people in power. God says that they are his servant, and we should obey them. Therefore... They are good, and we should do our best to uh, make the government better and make it honor God's laws, and we should vote real hard, we should be politicians, put Christians in government. You know, this is where people go with it. And I'm not saying that that has any kind of bad intentions at all, but... As you probably have noticed uh, through the course of this season, there are some contradictions with that. Uh, And so you get to this point where you can show them that, hey, that this doesn't really line up with scripture, uh, but they would say, oh, but this says, you know, all of these things. And so where I would go is this episode, God's use of nations, because Romans 13, what it says there about God setting people in power, God using them, they are his servants, None of this is new. Uh, guess what? None of the New Testament is new. <laughs> it, it it it's all based on the Old Testament. It is all based on the law. It's all based on the principles of God. God does not change. And yeah, so let's go back to uh, something where we can get a little more out of this about God using nations. So. While you can confidently say that the kingdom of man is opposed to the kingdom of God, there is also clear evidence that God still uses these nations and peoples who are opposed to him for his own plans and purposes. He is truly sovereign over and exercises his will and often punishment through the pagan kingdoms of the earth. This does not make these kingdoms godly or righteous or worthy of support. It does, however, put us in the position of not being able to justifiably rebel from them as a whole, because again, we are to obey them and submit to them. If God is carrying out his will, who are we to judge his methods and tools? It is God's role to judge evil, and even if a kingdom of this world is being used by God to accomplish his goals, it will still be judged and held accountable for its actions. That doesn't in and of itself make it good. The same is true of us, for those who rebel against God's decrees, to submit and love, not only in regards to our authorities in the church, but also secular authorities, so long as doing so does not contradict our submission and love to God. Again, the theology of obedience there. You are to obey your rulers, you are over and above that to obey God. So make sure that ruling, that obeying your rulers does not contradict uh, obeying God. Uh, that's the hierarchy there. The following verses that I will get into are some examples of God using nations for his purposes, while it is still clear that they do not follow him overall. They are referred to as, quote, the rod of my anger, or, quote, my servant, or, quote, the wrath of the Lord, and, quote, my shepherd. This is in no way to say that uh, Assyria, or Babylon, or Babylon's enemies, or Cyrus, or any of these people and kingdoms are godly, or to say that they are worthy of support, not in any way. To quote the final verse that's in this list, it is, quote, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. God being sovereign overall and directing even evil people and beings does not make those evil people or ungodly institutions good. And I'm sorry if it feels like I'm belaboring this point, but it, it deserves belaboring. We do not support them just because they are God's tools, or he established them as an authority. Those are not reasons, reasons to support. We are to recognize their evil, even if used by God, and distance ourselves from it. We do not resist the evil when used as God's tool because it is directed by God. But we also don't join the evil because evil is never to be embraced. We are to stay away from evil. So uh, when you look at it this way, there is no dichotomy. There is no contradiction. There is no problem or issue or complication. It, it's it's fairly simple and pretty clear the problem is more of a problem of perception and indoctrination and these types of things, where it seems at first glance that that oh no that's not right and you know that that sounds like rebellious talk or that sounds pretty fringe or something like that. When in reality, it's just very clearly the theology of obedience that is laid out in Scripture. That's where it is. So. Let's get into some of these verses, and I'm just going to read them. Some of them are pretty long. They uh, come from various parts of the Old Testament, and these are the examples. I guess mostly, I guess it's Isaiah and Jeremiah, the ones I pulled out. But um, these are the examples where God talks about using nations. And uh, again, this is where people, uh, they pull usually from Romans 13, but it's the same principle of saying that, oh, well, God set them up, and God put them in power, and God is using them. God's saying that they're his servants. They're saying to obey them. So therefore, uh, we should be a part of them, and we should join them, and we should vote, and we should do all these things. And um, one does not necessarily uh, follow from the other. So let's uh, go to where this originates in the Old Testament and uh, go through what God actually says about it. So, this first section is Isaiah 10, verses 5 through 14. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger! The staff in their hands is my fury! Against a godless nation I send them, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take the spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think— But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hemeth like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images?" When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples.' And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing, or opened the mouth, or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? And I'll stop there. Um, There is some good closure there because that is a direct reference to the very beginning where it says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. And he says that I send them and I command uh, that leader. So God is saying that uh, he commands that leader that that leader and that country is the rod of his anger, but at the very end shall the axe boast over those over him who hews with it? Shall the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? The rod should not wield him who lifts it. The staff should lift or, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Um, it's It's saying that just because the tool does a thing, and the tool wielder um, is the one that orchestrates it, it doesn't mean that the tool should be magnified or um, should impart really anything to it. The tool is just a tool, and the tool is being used by the tool wielder. So if you really want some meaning, and you want the intentions, and you want those things, you got to go to the tool wielder, not to the tool. And he does specifically uh, call this out, that even though he is using Assyria... And its leader to carry out God's will, even though God is doing this, the leader himself is not intentionally doing that, because it says, um, but he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. And then uh, goes into the boasting of the king and the things that he says, and uh, that maybe he'll go after Jerusalem and Samaria as well, because, uh, you know, isn't he so great? And God's saying, well, no, and that he will be punished in the end. And that's the other thing that uh, God says later on is that when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So even though God set up this king and this ruler, God set up this nation, God uses this king to carry out his will his punishment in this instant. And uh, he calls this nation and this leader, his rod and his staff. And he says that he commands them. Even though that is all true, God also says that he will then punish this arrogant leader and that uh, this leader really doesn't have any qualities. The qualities exist in God because God is the one wielding this leader and this nation as a tool. And so God is the one that is fully in charge. And this leader is actually evil and will be punished, even though God is in full command of this leader and this nation. And God is the one that established it and is commanding it. So, yes, I, th- that probably makes it pretty clear. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 8 through 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all these surrounding nations, I will devote them to destruction, and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstone and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then, after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste." I will bring upon that land all of the words I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. And eh, I might get into the next one debating here. Okay. Cause I think it is still about Babylon. We'll get into the next one next in case there's something different. Uh, the point here, and what I just read, was that uh, God is bringing Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and um, he's overall referring to the entire nation, he's bringing Babylon against the land and its inhabitants and all the surrounding nations. So he is commanding and leading, and he is orchestrating this where uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his armies are going to come in and take over other nations. So God is in charge overall on a macro level of the nation of Babylon and of its king. Uh, and he even calls Nebuchadnezzar specifically, my servant. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Uh, so again, going back to Romans 13, I guess it is worth <laughs> referencing many times. Uh, it does say that the, that we should submit to the ruling authorities that they are his servant, put there for certain reasons, to do certain things for God. Yes, that's exactly what Jeremiah is saying about Nebuchadnezzar, that he is God's servant, uh, put there for for reasons of God's, that God is going to use him as his servant to uh, carry out God's will. So yeah, that's a yeah, direct parallel there. So uh, let me just get into the next section of Jeremiah and see what it is that we're pulling out of that. Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 9 through 16. For behold, I am stirring up and bringing against Babylon a gathering of great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be taken. Their arrows are like a skilled warrior who does not return empty-handed. Chaldea shall be plundered. All who plunder her shall be sated, declares the Lord." "'Though you rejoice, though you exult, O plunderers of my heritage, though you frolic like a heifer in the pasture and neigh like stallions, your mother shall be utterly shamed, and she who bore you shall be disgraced. Behold, she shall be the last of the nations, a wilderness, a dry land, and a desert, because the wrath of the Lord she shall not be inhabited, but shall be an utter desolation. Everyone who passes by Babylon shall be appalled and hiss because of all her wounds.'" Set yourselves in array against Babylon all around. All you who bend the bow, shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Raise a shout against her all around, she has surrendered, her bulwarks have fallen, her walls are thrown down. For this is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her, do to her as she has done. Cut off from Babylon the sower and the one who handles the sickle in time of harvest. Because of the sword of the oppressor, everyone shall turn to his own people, and everyone shall flee to his own land. So yeah, this just uh, describes basically what the end of the last section of verses says that uh, that God will then punish Babylon. <laughs> so uh, yes, this same Babylon, the same king that God said was his servant that he is using for his will... Uh, Then he talks about destroying, utterly destroying, and everyone shall participate in that destruction. And uh, uh, I will clarify, I guess, that um, this is God prophesying through a prophet and directly telling people to rebel against Babylon at this certain point in time. And at other points in time, he specifically told the people uh, through prophecy to obey and submit to Babylon, So don't get any ideas that, oh, we should overthrow the government. Uh, No, I I do not think that God is going to directly tell anybody to take up arms against any nations in the modern time. Uh, In fact, in the end times, as we found out in Daniel's prophecy, it is Christ who is the one that destroys them. It's the stone that destroys uh, the nations and that they are his enemies and he will take care of them as he sees fit. And if he directly tells Christians to do so, then so be it. And when we see God coming, and uh, apparently there's no way we'll be able to miss that, um, then we can figure that out. But that has not happened as of this point. So we are not going to worry about that. The point is just that Babylon is God's servant, that Nebuchadnezzar is his servant carrying out his will. And yet in the end, uh, Babylon is evil, does evil things, and will be judged according to its deeds. So, And, and all the people are to participate in its destruction. Uh, The next section is Isaiah, and I kind of split this up because there are different sections that are worth covering. So it's Isaiah 44, verse 24, then 44, verse 28, then chapter 45, verses 1 through 6. So um, it just added a little bit of context, and the in-between part didn't really have any relevant context at all. So... Uh, starting at the beginning in the section of verses I listed. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the lions of kings, to open before him the two leved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass, and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness, and hidden riches of secret places." that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no one else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. So this is an even more pointed example uh, where uh, God is saying that Cyrus is his anointed and that uh, he's holding his right hand and that... uh, Basically, he is God's. That he is, uh, it says earlier, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. And so, uh, Again, Romans 13, God establishes the rulers, and he uh, has them to carry out his will. They are his servants. Uh, yes, that that's exactly what's being said here. Again, and again, and again. And uh, so this time of Cyrus. Now, was uh, Cyrus a good, godly Christian person? Or was his nation, his government, uh, the same? Well, no. It's though thou hast not known me over and over again that uh, Cyrus is, is not one of God's elect. Cyrus is not someone who knows and fears and follows the Lord. However, God still anoints him, uh, guides him. He is still God's shepherd who is leading people on behalf of God, even though he does not know God. And so, again, this is not a contradiction to say that God sets up nations and rulers and God controls them and they carry out God's will and they are God's servants. There's no contradiction in saying that that is true and that those people and governments are evil, their intentions are against God, and we should not have anything to do with them. Uh, On the contrary, instead of those being contradictory things... Uh, those are meshed together. They're melded together because they are all one. As we've seen in these examples, and these are just four of multiple others that exist throughout the Old Testament and uh, some others that you can get loosely out of the new. They're not quite as direct as this. But um, yeah, it's just making this very clear that these people are evil. And in the end, God makes it clear. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. I form the light and create the darkness. It is not a contradiction that God has something to do with both because God does all things. There is no one beside him. He is the only one that creates. He is the one that is in control. And so it's only God. And and so there is no contradiction between uh, God using a person that is evil and uh, God using people that are his followers. He uses all things. He created all things. And that's God. And so we just need to recognize that and realize that that these things support each other. They are not contradictions of each other. It's kind of like people that say Paul contradicts Yeshua. And in reality, they actually um, mm-hmm. they build on each other. Paul builds on Yeshua overall. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think there's any point in getting into any more of this. Uh, I think that very clearly... Kind of lays it out. And again, it's not that... And I'm trying to bring up these things, these objections that people have towards what I am calling the theology of obedience. And it's not that most people would go back to the Old Testament and say, oh, God used the king of Assyria and uh, and therefore we should obey our governments too. No, people generally recognize that uh, these kings were evil. And so they, they don't typically bring those up as examples of why we should um, obey and be a part of our governments. Uh, however, they do use Romans 13, which says the exact same thing. It just doesn't have the same context and the same elaboration. Uh, which uh, handy enough for folks, it it leaves a lot to be desired. So we have to go to this to get a better example, a better explanation, more elaboration on this so that we can understand it better and understand it fully. And the, the, most of this was God speaking. So it's not like there's some you know interpretation issue. We're missing some of the context. Uh, oh, it was just this person that was talking about this point of view. No, this is God and he's being very clear and there's not really any getting around it. It's like going to uh, the verse in Samuel where uh, God says that having a king is a rejection of himself. That's God himself saying that, and he's being very clear that, uh, yeah, that having that king is a rejection. Even though God told them how the kingship, the monarchy, should uh, operate, and he told them how to do it. Again, that's not a contradiction that having that monarchy is a rejection of God. Even though it's a rejection of God, God still controls all things. God still has something to say about all different things. And uh, God can still say that, hey, even though you're rejecting me and going this route, um, at least go this direction. If you're going to do it, this is the way you should do it. And uh, the same, uh, and I didn't have the specific examples here, but the same is true in the Old Testament with these other nations and rulers. There are plenty of times where God uses them, he directs them, he has them do certain things, and then, not because they are good, but uh, uh, usually they are not, they're very evil, but God then tells them to stop, or to go after this certain nation, or to do certain things. And so, God is still directing them. That doesn't mean that they're good. Just means that God's directing them. They're a tool. And tools aren't necessarily good or bad. They're just tools. And so, uh, yeah, if you want to judge whether a tool is good or bad, you look at its actions. And since the tool is a living being, you can judge by their actions, their intentions, and their words. And you get their intentions through their words. And since we can see their actions and we have their words, we can tell that, yeah, they're evil. And that's just the way it is. So I will stop. Here, I think we've gone over this uh, plenty, and uh, I'm just going to leave it off here, and we'll get into the next section next time. And the next section is more commentary-focused. So, we've looked at kind of this macro perspective. We looked at the history. We've looked all through the Old Testament. These certain examples uh, certain people certain times all of these things and w- I think we've got this foundation down of the fact that there is this difference between the kingdom of man and kingdom of God they are opposed to each other however we are still su- to submit to the kingdom of man have an influence there um, in the form of salt and light uh, but our allegiance is to the kingdom of God which is ultimately against the kingdom of man even though, God uses the kingdom of man, and again, we, we've gone through all of these things that at first glance might seem contradictory or complicated or something. In reality, they're fairly common sense when you put everything together, and so we've done that. That's the first half. Now, we're getting into commentary on more specific teaching, and this will be com- coming uh, pretty much exclusively from Yeshua at first. It's going to be all about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, However, we're going to back up a little bit and start with the temptations of Yeshua and then get into the Sermon on the Mount, where we can elaborate on these temptations, you know, one of those being uh, Satan saying that he'll give uh, Yeshua all the kingdoms of the earth. And so, yeah, that's pretty relevant to looking at this relationship between the state and uh, God and man. And uh, then we get into uh, the verses about salt and light, which I've referenced many times, and there's a lot to be said about that. And so, as I get into these, there is some general commentary, but a lot of it is still trying to focus on this perspective of the theology of obedience. Um, that's, That's the main goal. And so uh, we're trying to focus on things related to that, but we will touch on many other things, and there's a lot to get into. So there's a lot of commentary on a lot of things. It's getting a little more specific. Think of this more akin to like a Bible study type deal uh, than um, a typical macro sermon kind of a thing, even though I am not specifically doing a Bible study and I have not specifically been doing sermons. um, uh, That's more of the feel. And so uh, that's what we'll get into next time. Uh, I do want to say thank you very much for those of you that are still supporting the show especially uh, mainly on Patreon. We have one person on Subscribestar, or two maybe on Subscribestar still. Um, But there are uh, plenty of patrons that are still hanging in there. We had a few that have left over the past few months. Um, Most of them, I think a lot of them came on uh, when I did a series with Van Armani and that was really popular at the time and a lot of people rushed in. Um, And then I think a lot of those have faded back out, but a few have stayed. Um, And we have gotten to new patrons. So we have Jacob, And we have Modern Retro Radio, and both of them have uh, become new patrons since the previous episode. And so thank you very much um, to you guys. I really appreciate that. That is, uh, again, how I pay for the show and all things. So if either one of you two want to get any of the perks associated with your subscription, if it has one, I don't remember what level you subscribed at. Some of them have perks and um, if you have perks that are owed to you and you would like them then email me and let me know uh, specifically what you want and we can uh, continue from there and if anybody else is interested in supporting this show and supporting uh, what I'm doing here then I would really appreciate uh, anyone to sign up and you can go to the Patreon page or Subscribestar they're both in the links for the show notes And um, again, it would be really appreciated if you would uh, help to support this and help to chip in to make this a thing that lasts for a long period of time. Because I would like this to, you know, even if I were to stop doing the show at some point, I'd like it to still be available to everyone, which means I would still be paying for it and paying for the hosting fees and such, even if I wasn't still creating content. And so uh, no matter what, I would like this to be something that is self-perpetuating and continues on. So if there are any other... Uh, comments, questions, anything else that you have, feel free to reach out via email at ourfoundations at protonmail.com You can check out the website for things You can follow on Twitter at FoundationsPC or reach out in whatever other way you can figure out And so, with that I'm out of here. Peace This has been Our Foundations Podcast Goodbye Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.